Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the Holy One. And holy is your word. Help us now to concentrate upon you speaking to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you actually wrote this for the Galatians through Paul. But even here today, this applies to us also as we get the meaning of it May it ever strike new and fresh thoughts in our minds, even though we believe in this doctrine, that we would not take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, we uh, continue on in our study of Galatians. We are in chapter 2, and that's section 11 through 19. And... Um, it's really a great text. It's the way that it starts out it seems kind of funny. It's talking about Peter clashing there uh, with Paul, or Paul actually clashing with Peter <laughs> because of what he had just done. Well, the question, the question of the day, the question of the ages, is how can a man be just before God? Uh, of course, that's found in Romans, found here in Galatians all throughout the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in a book as old as the book of Job. That's why we can say it's an ageless question. How then can a man be righteous before God? Because what Bildad asked. And uh, I think it's a very important question. Matter of fact, that's an eternal question. One of the most important questions anyone could ever ask. How can man be righteous before a holy God. Now, the, the thing is, is that humans have this thing called guilt. And guilt is a good thing. God gave it to us. And every man feels that guilt. Every man, woman, and child. Even down to babies. They know when they've done something wrong, right? But... The thing is that man likes to cover over that guilt because he doesn't like it because guilt is 
definitely bringing pain. And I like to think about that. So they have a self-confidence or a self-esteem, a positive thinking, or they will turn to drinking or drugs, anything that they can do to get rid of the guilt. And the more people they can have, especially around them and all around the world, agreeing that what they're doing is not really wrong when it is biblically wrong, and the more people actually identify with that, they feel better about it. And so if you can have a lot of people doing it, eventually people do get a seared conscience. They become hardened. But it's interesting what people do with that guilt. And it comes down to God being holy and man is not. Every man deals with the guilt one way or another. What do I do with this guilt? How can I be right in God's eyes? Well, we get that answer as we approach the heart of what this epistle is about that Paul wrote. And we're talking about something that is put so concise here in this Galatian area. This is the keystone thought of the New Testament. Uh, it sets forth, it defends the very biblical answer that we need to how can I be right before God because I don't feel right, I don't seem right, I am not right. Justification by faith. And, uh, of course, we think of uh, sola fide, we think of those, uh, those great uh, five statements that were made during the Reformation and they still are with us today, aren't they? And... Uh, this is at the heart of the gospel. And this is where we come to in Galatians as Paul has built this up. The entire scope of Scripture is focused upon this fact of justification by faith. And here it is coming right on the heels of Peter's reproof that he gets from Paul. And uh, it's at Antioch. This is very important. It's a very highly significant uh, as Paul addresses the issue. No issue could be more vital. And he saw the danger if he let this slide by. And uh, it's been said, no issue could be more vital. And uh, on the justification uh, by faith doctrine, suspends the survival or the shipwreck of the early church. Martin Luther would definitely be one to go to who wrote about that because as he read Romans 1.17 and as he finally understood what that meant and as he gleaned from what the Greek was, he said that if justification by faith is lost, all Christianity and all Christian doctrine is lost. According to Luther, justification by faith alone is the article on which the church stands or falls. I think this morning, as we take it something that we have discussed and talked about so much down through the years, because you can't avoid it, it doesn't matter what book you're in, you're going to touch on this somewhere. But it's something that's so needed in the body of Christ today. And I would hope that you would get the opportunity to ask another Christian what justification by faith is. Somebody outside the church here. And my fear is that you probably won't get an answer. They'll say, what? What is that? And that really is bothersome because we're talking about the, the very heart of what Christianity is about. And so that's why I say it is very important. And you say, well, Dennis, it sounds like you're just, just grinding this into our heads. Well, I'll keep pounding it. As long as it's here, we'll keep pounding I have to keep pounding it into my head. 
because it, it embraces it, it is the, the whole idea of the doctrines of grace this is where everything uh, hits on um, the difference between what Luther had and what the Roman church had seemed like it was minute but it was huge because they would say that they were justified by faith also that's why Luther had to and the reformers had to say but by faith alone faith plus nothing and so as we look at that historically, of course we can go all the way back to Paul and we see that too, but we see a, a man like Luther had to proclaim that. He discovered and he saw it. And um, the difference is is that we are imputed, counted as righteous because the righteousness of Christ was given to us. The Roman church, and this is where it stands today, it hasn't changed at all since then. Uh, they believe in infusion. You have some righteousness and you add Christ's righteousness to that. And even though it sounds close, it is so far from what the truth of the Scripture says. <clears throat> do, do you understand an infusion versus imputation? You are counted righteous. <clears throat> the Roman faith says you're not counted righteous except you have Christ in yourself and then you have you have to do your works then because that infusion is involving you. And that's the difference. That is why there's a reformation. If you want to come down to the very pinpoint of what this whole deal was about the reformation, it is hinging upon that. And you say, tell us how much difference. It is hugely different. It is not close. Paul was a man of the hour. As we look at at this time, he was specifically raised up by God to be this apostle at this time and at this Galatian crisis. This is a, a time of crisis that is going on. You can think of the case of, of Joseph. God raised up Joseph. A time of crisis, wasn't it? God raised up Moses. That was a time of crisis. He, he brings up a man to lead them. Samuel was a time where they needed because everybody was doing right what was in their own eyes that's how they define right and how can I be right before God well whatever I think I think that is just like today isn't it whatever I think is what's right and whatever you think is right we're all right let's just be happy together right um, David God brought David along after we had the bad incident of the king before him Saul. Elijah, the prophets then had to come along. Elijah and then Elisha. He used them. We can think of Daniel. And he would bring them up. Sometimes it was like they were alone. Well, that man, Paul, he's a man. He's not any kind of little God. But he was the apostle to the Gentiles. God raised up this one man, Paul. And he has to defend who he is and what God has done with him. We've seen that in the first chapter and then moving into chapter 2 and it's kind of continuing on today. Um, as now he's not going against the false teachers, he has to go up against Peter, the apostle, about this. Now that's incredible that even Christians can get led astray from the doctrine of justification by faith and get confused with it. That's why we have so many uh, Arminian beliefs today. It dominates the church today. Paul was bold. Paul stood up during this occasion. 
And we showed that guilty sinners are justified by Christ alone. Christ or nothing. There's no such thing as Christ doing his part to save us and then we do our little part. 99% God, 1% us. That's not it. We have no part except being a poor beggar with nothing. We are empty-handed, bankrupt, Sermon on the Mount says, and we receive this very gracious gift. What compassion that Christ has for us beggars. Wow. So in the verses before us today, Paul continues to prove his independence that he has from the other apostles, even though he is equal with them, he's not above them, he's not a pope. But at the same time, he was not given the ministry from them that came straight from God, right? And he studied under God. <laughs> he didn't get his teaching from them. That's what he's already said. And then he went down to Jerusalem the 14 years later, that's what we talked about last week, and then he saw the pillars of the Jerusalem church, the pillars, the very foundation, the apostles. And he met with them, talked with them, and found out they were teaching and preaching the same thing he was. They were preaching the doctrines of grace. They were teaching salvation by grace alone, by Christ alone, justification by Christ, by faith. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate that. I have a uh, little struggle in my throat this morning. It's deciding to <clears throat> go like that. And I need something to cut through that pretty badly. Anyway, what we're talking about here is um, we, we dealt with the Jerusalem Council, the very first church council. They met over the issue of legalism, the Judaizers and everything, right? Remember that. So he confronted that issue and the Judaizers. Now he's confronting this apostle of all people, Peter, who was so close to Jesus. He very well knew grace. He preached grace. We've seen his sermons. We've seen his messages in the book of Acts. He preached the gospel correctly. You know, he knew it. He, you know, he, he preached it. Most of the time he lived it. But he came in. Went back to legalism. This is serious business. Serious business for Paul because he catches something that nobody else does. And if he doesn't nip it in the bud now, a major problem will arise. So he has to go to another apostle, Peter, and address that. Now that would be kind of difficult, wouldn't it? But Paul knows truth. And we must deal with it. So in verses 11 through 13, we're going to deal with Peter's error. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, and when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, a lot to be said there. Um, here's another story. Here's another Part of history that happened in the church is kind of ugly, especially when you see an apostle sinning. <laughs> so first of all, the class comes in verse 11. Peter has a conduct issue here, and so serious that Paul felt constrained to oppose him face to face. 
because it's making an effect on the church. And he didn't do it as a whisper, some kind of a backbiter, uh, some kind of a tail bearer, you know, telling other people and everything about it. He went right to him. So he withstood him as a brother in Christ, opposed him, and corrected the error of another brother in Christ. And that's what we're called to do. I will tell you, sometimes it's hard to correct one another, uh, especially when they avoid you and they shut you out and you can't even talk to them. I don't know how many times that has happened where people shut it off and they will not talk to you on the phone, will not answer your messages, will not let you talk to them personally. That is sad because we are here as brothers in Christ to restore one another. Galatians, later we'll talk about that in Galatians 6. We're here to restore each other this morning. We're here to be restored. We're broken people. Christ is putting us back together and the Word of God is what helps us. And we realize that we've been set free from that bondage and that brokenness and that good to know. And that's what Paul really has to bring forth here. Peter wrote under divine inspiration. Whenever he wrote that, he, he was never wrong because he was inspired by God's Spirit. God's Word is infallible, it's inerrant, it's complete, it's authoritative, sufficient, effective, determinative for salvation. I mean, it's everything. So never can it be anything different than that. But the apostles are not infallible. They are men like us, and they sin. But not in the Word of God, right? We got that across there. And Peter really was not hung up on dietary laws. He's not hung up on the food thing anymore. He was, but you get that answered in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, and God gives him a vision about the animals and that he's to kill and to eat. And he says, oh no, Lord, far be it for me to do that. You know, I could never do that. He says, Shut up, Peter. Eat. <laughs> Something that Gentiles ate and Jews didn't. Now, that is not in your translation. I did that loosely. Forgive me. Um, but Peter had, was eating with Gentile brothers and sisters. He's eating together with them. Now, that before was, uh, no, no, you don't do that. You don't go in there and you, you don't eat with them of all things. But he's, he's in sync with the gospel. He was doing what was right when he went up there to Antioch. He was doing what he knew that God had set forth. He stood fast in freedom. He was for freedom, Peter was. And the all-sufficiency of Christ by faith. And he walked in love. He wanted to be right in with the Gentile brothers and sisters. So get that correct in your mind. I mean, there, there it is, you know. So uh, quite, the, quite the, the situation... It says um, in verse 12, we get the cause for the clash. In verse 12, it's for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. He started withdrawing. By the way, some of you might have a question. I'll back up. I know you really don't like to do this. But at the end of verse 11, he stood condemned. And I know some of you might be saying, whoa, what happened here? Did he lose his salvation? He can't lose his salvation. Why is he condemned? It says in Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation. We sing that, right? And now he's condemned. Well, he's guilty. He's guilty. He, he sinned. So in that sense, we're not talking about salvation here, but we're talking about the guilt that he now has. There's a sin in what he's done. I think he knows it. And just in case he doesn't, Paul is there for a reason. 
So he withdrew, he separated himself from the Gentiles. He had been eaten with them, now the Jews, the legalized Jews now come there, and guess what? Well, he starts getting a little scared. He knows that they uh, oppose certain things that Christians do in their freedom. And uh, so when they arrive, he withdraws. The word is a military term. It's a strategic military disengagement. Um, it's troops drawing back from the attacking enemy. It's a sneaky retreat that Peter is doing here. Nobody's going to notice. I'll just get away from them while the Jewish guys are here. And I'll leave with them now. It doesn't sound like a big deal. We can just let this ride, can't we? Paul proclaims freedom. The Galatian letter is about freedom in Christ. We have so many different things in our mind, the way that we think religion ought to be. Keep rethinking as you read through Scripture and discover how you've been set free and here, that's what Paul wants everybody to know. And especially Peter. We're free from those Jewish legalisms. So the reason he withdrew, it says that at the end of verse 12, he feared the party of the circumcision. He feared man. The circumcision. Why those guys? They're wrong anyway. They're legalists. Well, the fear in Paul's mind, and this is a proper fear, the thought that he's thinking, okay, listen, we're going to have two churches here. We're going to have separated blood. We're going to have the Jews over here, the Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians. That's not what God has ever meant to do. Can you see the seriousness? You could have a terrible fraction of the church right there right there in Galatian area. So, we know that when Peter had seen Jewish friends coming up there to Antioch, that's where Paul is pastor and Barnabas is a pastor there. They're serving there. And Oh my. Um, Peter is at the table and he just kind of steps away from the Gentile brethren and he's hoping that None of the Jewish brethren would be able to smell the pork chops on his bread. Bacon. <laughs> yeah, everybody likes bacon. Thank, thank the Lord for Acts chapter 10. Oh, that's not healthy anyway. Peter was practicing hypocrisy. And that's what's implied here. Uh, Peter hypocritically implied that there's still, and what he's doing, there's still a distinction between the meat and the drinks, between the clean and the unclean, between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, he's already been past that. But he's acting out of fear, out of cowardice. He fears the wrath of the Jews, the wrath of the Jewish believers. Some of them might have been believers. Some of them I really have to wonder, did they really get it? 
Peter didn't know the truth, as we have already mentioned. It's a new bargain, this new covenant. God sets it forth, puts it into play. It's a new day. Peter understood that. He knew full well. He knew what he was doing. Don't, wouldn't you think that he knew for sure exactly what he's doing? He felt a little guilty about it. You ever done that? You ever just kind of distanced yourself from somebody because of somebody else sees them with you and they're going to get all confused and, you know, and we start bringing out, people bring out judgments and everything before we, you know, sometimes it's good just to be able to talk with someone and get, get the story and find out where they're at. Go to that person. Don't go to somebody else. Go to the person. Talk with them and see what the deal is because that's only biblical it's it's called uh, in well in Matthew eighteen where you have church discipline and it really starts with one brother going to another brother a sister going to a sister a sister a brother a brother to a sister and they just don't if we have the word of God it's common with us we may not get everything absolutely resolved but we can certainly work at it and we're here and we do have freedom but we don't want to abuse the freedom. But at the same time, we don't want to be legalist, you know, and so there's a fine line that, that goes down through there, and so you're going to have different views. But it's good to be able to, since we're brothers and sisters, we can still talk about it. And, of course, Paul is going to address this issue because it's more than just a, a, little, just a little matter. It's a, it's a big matter. What's the consequences? Verse 13 pretty well explains that. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. The Jews who were Christians... They have been eaten with Gentiles too. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy as a result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was a hypocrite too. You ever heard that? I don't go to church because there are hypocrites there. That's right, they're all hypocrites. Because we do put on our mask, we do act things out Probably sometimes it's good that we do act it out rather than just coming home full-heartedly and at the same time anger just rushing out of us. But I'm not telling you to be a hypocrite, but uh, yeah, if the church is perfect, then guess what? Uh, I won't be welcome there. Uh, I'd be the first one to be asked out. So the hypocrisy is that the other Jews are dissembling in the like manner that Peter is doing. Barnabas is now doing it. He's backing out. And oh boy, Paul is saying this. And he's going, oh, what is going on? Those guys know that. Did Barnabas know that? Well, sure. So he preaches at his church. They were free to eat what they wanted to eat. They knew that. They played the part of hypocrites to gain a reputation among the legalists. Now, there are lessons we can get out of that. And then we'll move on to um, the rebuke. And then the, the doctrine of what this is all embodied. One lesson is the best of men are men at best. This should be encouraging to us, folks. The best of men are only men at best. The best of men are sinful. The best of men are weak. The best of men are inconsistent. The best of men are full of faults. That's why we need to remember grace and forgiveness for others and deal with where God has put us because those particular people might be the very ones that we need to learn some lessons in. But yet we might see the sins of certain people. 
And, of course, there are ones that do bring an absolute consequence. That's the ones we have to address. There are other things that, um, you know, if, if we mentioned everything, uh, well, we'd all be out of here. <laughs> you know, we all still battle sin. But you can remember Noah. Noah in his drunken stupor, uh, given uh, justice there to, um, to go out and get drunk, because Noah did it. No, uh, that's, that's definitely a, a real sin. How about Abraham? Well, faithful Abraham may be found like he was asking his wife to lie and play the harlot because of his fear. Pretty serious. And you might remember a righteous Lot. Lot was a believer in the book of Hebrews. And he may, found, may be found choosing to uh, dwell in Sodom. Consequences there. And when we did a, a message on Samson here a while back, he was a believer. Despite all the things that he did, he was still a believer. That's why, because he was chosen for the foundation of the world, and God's going to keep him no matter what. And that doesn't give us credence to sin. <clears throat> uh, Paul answers that in Romans. May uh, grace abound because of sin. Or sin abound because of his grace. David, of course, committed adultery and murder covered up. Peter's no exception. He's saved by God's grace. He still sin. And he behaved graciously <clears throat> toward our fallen brethren. He had been doing that. He helped people. And uh, so he was concerned about uh, others. And uh, of course, I think when we, we look at this uh, man, Peter, we know that he was a true believer and he definitely had zeal for the Lord. That's one lesson. The best of men are still men at best. Second one is if we seek to please men, we will probably fail Christ. If we're ruled by the will and the very glory of God, if we're ruled by that, then we can't be ruled by fearing men, can we? If we're there to glorify God, if we're ruled by the fear of men, then we can't be ruled by the fear of God. There's a third lesson, and this is most important. The effect of our actions are immense on others and a family people around us at church we are responsible for the influence we have upon others by our example what we do is going to affect somebody else how powerful of an example we are as we walk together. That's why it's good to be around other other people because we are accountable. Once we know we're accountable, we're less likely to do something that might be over the edge. Maybe it's not right. So, you know, maybe it's maybe it's on the line there. But it's good to know, yeah, there are people that are watching. Unbelievers are watching. Our families are watching. People all over the place. And by, and by the way, in the day and age we live in, you really are not private. I mean, you could be just stepping outside. Somebody gets a picture of you. Boom, it goes all over the Internet. It's on YouTube. I mean, you are not private for anything. And they can do whatever they want with it. So I think it's a warning to watch ourselves. Be careful. Everything we do influences those around us. 
And now we get to Paul's rebuke. It's found in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, and I like the Jews, well, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, in this little section, and we're starting actually from 15 on even through 21, through the rest of the chapter here. Um, I think it's important to, to note that this is really what's being put forth, what he's really hammering on. And what Peter's doing is very inconsistent with what he believes, with what he preaches. And it was in front of people, so Paul has to rebuke him publicly. Whenever somebody does a sin that's publicly that everybody sees, then it, it needs to be brought forth that people will know. Peter lived like the Gentiles. Now by his action, he's saying the Gentiles really should live like the Jews. And uh, so that's, uh, that's what's happening. If you turn to 1 Timothy 5.20, Paul wrote this to Timothy, and here's what he said about going to situations where there's sin. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. It reminds me of Ananias' fires in the book of uh, Acts chapter 5 where they were both killed. And right in front of the church, everybody knew about it. It was known, but it's, it's good to get that out in that we would fear uh, doing some kind of sin publicly that would be of consequences to the whole church, to our families and everything else. Augustine said this, it is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. I think that backs up the first Timothy. Even though first Timothy doesn't need to be backed up. <laughs> That's all we need, right? He compelled Gentiles to live by law. That's really what he's saying. So I don't see where he's telling the Gentiles to, to live by the, the law now on the, on the dietary manner. Well, in essence, he is. Even though he's not saying that, he is. Paul saw immediately what he was doing. Law is still the rule of life uh, for Peter, uh, in this case right here, and he's compelling others to live by it. And this is totally contrary to the true gospel of grace. Romans 6, 14 and 15. Have to get into Romans, don't we? Romans and Galatians this area are so much alike. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Well, may it never be. And then he talks about the relationship of a slave and master and um, and such. But what, what he's talking about here, <laughs> sin is not to be master over us. The law is not to be master over us, but we're under grace. We live by grace. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So we are dead to the law. No longer under that law. Of course, in Colossians, you'll see that. Oh, let's turn there. Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. Some of the things that uh, Peter was kind of doing. 
Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not withholding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul in this letter again talks about not legalism but it's Christ it's Christ it's not those things that's going to lift you up self-abasement or uh, taking things away from yourself or you know there's a guy that every year I think he's supposed to get up on a cross and uh, do some kind of a a deal that's supposed to make him more righteous because he did what Christ did and so he hangs on a cross for a day you know, those kind of things. It's going to make us look better. We're going to be religious. and you know, we're, we're going to have our meditation at a certain time, at a certain hour. For your own self, that might be good. But it doesn't have to be impressed upon others. So, you know, all those things that are outwards, Paul just abolishes, diminishes all of that stuff. All of those traditions, boom, knocks them out. And he says, folks, folks, that, that's, those things are not pleasing to God. Do what, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Now, let's get in to this great doctrine, justification by faith alone. And that's what we see in 15 through 21. There are three words that pop up. <coughs> faith, law, justification. Pretty important. By the way, I believe that no one understands Christianity who does not understand justification. You say, what? If you don't understand that, it means you can't be saved? Not necessarily saying that, but you may not understand what the term means, but you have to understand the concept that you were a sinner. And it took the very grace of God. I have nothing to offer Him. I feel so guilty and he's a holy God. It's only by the work of Christ on the cross that can get me into communion with God. And that's, that's the concept of that. But we should be able to um, <laughs> communicate what this great doctrine is. So we're going to help that out here. This is the first time that occurs in Paul's epistles. That's pretty important. This is where this really first starts. It's found three times in verse 16 of our Galatians passage here. Three times. I think something is uh, being stated here that we must listen to, right? It's definitely not something that we do. It's something done for us. 
This was done for you. It was given to us freely. So I'd like to pay it back. No. The gracious act of God based solely on Christ's accomplishment. What, what was accomplished at the cross? Jesus died for sinners. That was what was accomplished. Is it accomplished when whenever one makes a decision for Christ? Is it accomplished then? No. Because it was accomplished at the cross for the ones who He died for, the specific ones, the price was paid. We sing those songs. Jesus paid it all. It was all done there. Why is it that it rests upon our decision for Christ? You don't find that. You'll never find that in Scripture. Why is it that I'd say it seems like 90% of the body of Christ or the church today preaches making that decision? Is it there? It's, it's not found. That's how important this is. I think we've got a gospel to preach to church-going people today. I think there are a lot of lost people sitting in, in the pews today. If you know someone, say, well, they go to church. Uh, don't assume that they're Christians. Find out where they're really at. Find out what's going on there. Do they really know what happened at the cross? Was it really accomplished? Did Jesus die for them? And of course, they're, if they're drawn to Christ, they will know that they have been drawn to Him. It's His Word. He declares the sinner just. It's the good news that sinful men and women can be brought right into the very acceptance of God. He accepts us. We don't accept the King of the universe. He accepts us by simple faith in Christ. It's a legal declaration by God, and that's one thing we have to stress. It's a legal declaration saying, you are now justified before me. I'm declaring you righteous. Did I do anything to get righteous? Not at all. Because your actions may not be so righteous all the time, but you are now right before Him. What's the opposite of justification? Condemnation. Guilt. Condemned. Does that help understand it? Sometimes that's a good way to describe justification. It's the opposite of condemnation. The opposite of justification is condemnation. For example, to condemn is declare guilty. The judge says, guilty. And he's now declared you guilty. Well, you may or may not be of that particular crime, but he has declared you that. To justify is to declare someone not guilty. You are now righteous. In the Bible, justification refers to God's free and gracious act by which he puts a sinner right with him forever. Not only declares him righteous, he now forgives him. He not only forgives him, he pardons him. Not only pardons him, he accepts him. Not only accepts him, but he adopts him into the family to get all the rights, the privileges as being heirs, getting the rights and privileges of our brother Jesus Christ, who is God. He is God. We'll never become God, but we will now have our righteous acts glorified. 
The perfect work of Christ. That's the basis everything is upon. Our justification was obtained by Christ when He died at Calvary as our substitute. Look in Romans 4.25. Substitute, He subbed. Remember the substitute teacher? Oh, good, we have a substitute teacher coming in today. <laughs> Debbie is a substitute teacher, eh? Somebody takes the place of another. 4.25 He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Because we are justified people, He had to be raised. Um, He was delivered over because of our sin. He died, but then He rose again Of course, we're justified because the work has been done. It's been paid for. It was His work. Oh, how important is that? You know what Paul is saying? Peter, I'm rebuking you because you have violated the cardinal doctrine of justification by faith. He doesn't say it in that way, but he's actually saying that. And this is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. This is what everything's all wrapped about. You're condoning legalism, which is the exact same thing you would condone. Uh, you would not condone legalism if somebody was practicing that. You're condoning a faith work system. He really was. Pharisees, many of them, you know, there's them being Jews. They did an amazing thing. This is, uh, Piper brought this forth, this kind of illustration. They took railroad tracks, which are the ties, the, the nails, the rails, the whole kit and caboodle, took those railroad tracks, lifted it up on end, if you can feature this, took that baby like a ladder, and took it to the very gates of heaven, propped it up, and start walking up those steps or those tracks, right? Now that's really what they were doing with God's law. That's the essence of legalism. You're going to do something that's really going to make yourself look a little bit better. You're going to go a little more holier than the others. You make the law into a list of steps. That's what the Pharisees have done. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. Well, if you have a track on the ground, like it's supposed to be, railroad tracks, and some of the ceremonial tiles are picked up and thrown out. We don't need those. They're under the rails running the track there. But as a ladder, you pop that up there. You can't miss a rung. You, you, you're going to die. The fall is going to be immense, right? A rung is crucial. You're not going to be able to climb the next one. I was up on a ladder yesterday and got up a little bit further than really wanted to. I had the regular step ladder that, you know, was about like this. And I said, ah, oh, I think I'll get that 20-foot ladder out. Popped it up against the tree. 
And I started looking up there. I started looking up that tree on the board. That tree is just goes forever. It's like it went into heaven. And I'm gonna. How far am I gonna go up this thing? I started looking, and you know, my foot missed a rung. I started. Whoa! Gotta get back on the other. See what's going on here. You know, I, the rung was still there. I, I just missed it. Kind of scary. Let's look in Romans chapter three, verse twenty. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Wow. Hey, Peter. I'm going to write in the book of Romans one of these days. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to write. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law. It's been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But the law and the prophets back it up. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody remember that one, right? All of sin. And, and, and it's because we, we sin because we can't meet that law. Being justified, declared right as a gift by His grace through the redemption, the very buying out of his, our slavery, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction. The Father was satisfied with what the Son did at the cross. He was pleased to crush him, as Isaiah 53 says. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans, thank you free grace of God Christ the substitute satisfied the demands of the law faith in Christ does not accomplish justification did you hear what I said faith and we just said it you're justified by faith faith alone faith in Christ does not accomplish justification that sounds strange our faith, we, we receive it. It's a free grace gift, faith is. But faith is not a condition upon which justification is granted. Otherwise, you've done something. You are granted this grace. But one of the many, it's a many blessed fruits, one of many of justification, faith is. And we're saved by grace. Through faith, that not of yourselves. So we have to have the faith, justification by faith. But it's like this, and one claimed it this way, and I think it was still Piper, uh, dealing with the railroad tracks. Okay, it's a good little picture here. God gave the law originally as a railroad track to guide Israel and their obedience to Him. That was to guide them in that. It's going to show them their sins, but that's, that's really what, what that is there. The engine is supposed to pull a person along the track of God's grace. The engine pulls the person in, in the car there. You have the power of the Spirit involved. Okay, there's a coupling. 
between the engine and the next car. You know what that coupling is? Between the car and the engine? That's your faith that's been given to you. And that's how you're declared not guilty. You're declared righteous because now He has granted that faith that gives you into the very presence of Him. And you see that in the Old Testament. Talk about the New Covenant. You'll see this in the New Testament. You'll see salvation by grace through faith along the track of obedience or sanctification. So the ladder is what Paul actually tore down. He had had the ladder and he was going up those rungs, going pretty good, he thought, right? That's what he did. You know what he did? He tore it down because if you look in verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, as we became Christian, we ourselves have also been found sinners. We realize we're sinners. And that's, that's a good thing. The law shows us our sin. We realize as we are Christians now, we, we realize what sinners we were and we, we still sin. But is Christ a minister of sin? No. May never be. And then he says, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, the law, you know, those the tracks that are now put up as a ladder to heaven, if I rebuild that, well, I prove to be a transgressor. I'm still in my sins if that's what I'm doing. Christ is of nothing then to him, right? Christ is the object of of our faith. It's not our faith that justifies us, but it is Christ who is the object of our faith. We place our faith in Him that what He's done is it. It's finished. The purpose of the law really shows that it can't save. The law is very powerful, but it's can never save. Can never save. It shows us. It does a great thing in showing us our sin. It shows us our guilt, which we must see. The transgression against God is to presume that you can climb your way up a ladder of morality to whatever favor it is. That's that's what all other religions are doing. That's what everybody's doing. They're, you know, to satisfy their own guild or whatever it is, they're climbing up this ladder. They're going to be good. They're going to do this. They're going to please their Krishna or uh, if you're a Hindu or Muslim, whatever it is, that's, it's all those other religions. And even in our church, body of Christ today, all throughout the world, many of them are using a little bit of a ladder there because it's their belief. They believe, yeah, we believe, but why do we believe, as R.C. Sproul says? The law brings a knowledge of sin, and it condemns. And then one cries out to the Lord for His grace and His mercy, because we see that, how can I ever be just before God? You remember Martin Luther? It bothered him constantly. And he got to where he even hated God. Somebody said, but do you love God, Martin? And he says, love God, I hate Him. Why? Because God was perfect. He was good and He demanded perfection and He knew He couldn't do it. That's being honest because we know we can't do it either. What's the, the Christian is now dead to the law. 
that we might live to God. So it says in verse 19. I know through 15 through 21, I, I went to some other verses and, and uh, there's some repetition there as describing justification and there might be some things there that sounds really hard to understand and I don't blame you because you have to read it over and over and then think on it and dwell upon it. Um, and I really didn't describe that as well as I uh, would like to. And if you'd like to ask me later on afterwards, uh, call me up today or get a hold of me later and say, I'd still like to know what's, what Paul was saying there. It's a difficult section in a way. Uh, but yet, what we just talked about really explains what Paul is really doing in it, in this justification. Verse 19 says, Through the law, the only thing I got was death. Didn't save me, but it killed me. The only thing the law did was kill me. That's a good thing. Notice the words, I am dead. For through the law, I died to the law. I am dead or I died. It's a historic fact. That's what happened at the cross. You died with Christ. It's already been done. You already died if you were His. Paul learned through his long experience with the law in order to live in close communion with God and have His power. You just simply have to give up on that legalism. That's what He had done all of His life. That's all He knew. That's what it was all about. You know what? We're all here dead to the law, positionally, practically. I will tell you, we're still struggling against it. We're still struggling against things that we put in our own mind our own traditions, our own whatever. We struggle against that and we fight and we, we, we like to, you know, be rigid. I want to tell you, let go. You are free. You have liberty in Christ. That's what Peter is saying. I'm not taking something out of context trying to make it say something there. That's just simply the text here today. And that's what he wants us to realize. Long experience of that. He knew about it. The old self loves to boast in its ability to do something. And it will always go back there. Believe me. You know what? We all have Arminians needed deep. The Arminian thought into our heart. We have to beat that. I want to tell you, this morning, this is great news, guys. We are free. This whole text about is what this book is about. We are set free in Christ. And of course, you know, you say, well, hey, I can go out and do anything I want. Yeah, you can. In Christ, you're not going to do anything that won't glorify Him. Sometimes, you know, in Romans 14 it says, there are certain things that bother some people and there are other things that don't. And it's not necessarily in the Scripture what it is. What do you do with it? I think that's where Christian love comes in. The law of love. And that's what Paul is trying to stress to Peter because he did have love for them and now all of a sudden turned from them. But we like to boast in our ability to climb up the ladder that we've already died to. We are now alive to God. It's Christ who lives in me. And that's where we're going to be at next week. One of those favorite memory verses, favorite verses that everybody has. 
It is there no longer. Therefore, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's pray. Does that set you free? Father, thank you for this Word of God. May it help us learn you a little bit better where you have placed us and that we'd be pleasing because of the Holy Spirit who is working in us and that we're just desiring to obey you. And it starts with each one of us. Help us to glorify you better. Help us to recognize our freedom that's been put in Christ and that we would not battle against so many things that the world has and the flesh has and the devil has but that we'd be concentrating on who you are and who we are in the person of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.